Well, good morning, Terra Nova. So this Sunday, we'll be continuing the Gospel of Matthew. If you can find your way in your Bible or your app to Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 through 39. And as we're getting there, um, I want to share a little bit of behind the scenes, a, a little, of what goes into sermon preparation and what any good preacher should probably be thinking as they're preaching a passage. And And really, it's three roles that have a balance that that need to be a part of that. So I want you to to realize that and think about this. The preacher at once has to be in the role of like a prophet, that he speaks the word of God and is able to say, thus saith the Lord. This isn't isn't a preacher's opinion. This isn't something that I've thought of or conceived of. This is the word of God, and I just want to declare that, right? Every good preacher should do that. By the way, most of you will end up in multiple churches over your lives. As you're looking at a church, I would encourage you to make that the first thing you look at in the preaching. Does, does this speaker rely on this book, or is the Bible sort of an add-on to a composite of thoughts that this person has? Secondly, the, the, the preacher has to also be a pastor, a, a disciple maker, a shepherd to people. And that means we have to take these things that are true from the Bible and help men, women, and children understand, how do I apply this in my life so that I can walk closer to the Lord, so that this information and revelation about Jesus can come into my world so that I can change the way I live? And there's a third role, and that role is what, just to keep the alliteration because I have to, uh, is professor. That there are times when there's something in the Bible that isn't clear to us. It's from another time, or maybe there's a piece of language there that we don't get unless we look at it carefully. And in those moments, I feel like almost like I, I step outside the sermon to say, hey, we're all trying to track after God through this, but unless we get this baseline of information, it may actually hinder our progress in following after him. And so today, there's going to be one of those pieces where we need to talk a little bit about this passage and some of the conflict that centers around it historically. So here's the roadmap for today. First, there's going to be a bit of a prequel to the sermon's three points, and in that prequel, we'll talk about the the doubling, that there's two stories told in the Gospel of Matthew about feeding thousands of people, and and we'll work through that and what that means, and uh, does that cause us to have lack of confidence in the Bible? Does it cause some confusion? Where do we need to end up with that? And then we'll get into the text, and there are three places I want us to stop in this text. Uh, The first is the compassionate shepherd, and I don't always title sermons, but if I did, that would be the title of this one, that we would see Jesus as the compassionate God, the compassionate shepherd. We'll, We'll talk about his heart and why that's so important for disciples then and disciples now who follow after him to know there is a heart behind all of this. Secondly, we'll talk about the work of the disciples, primarily for what the disciples were doing in response to Jesus in this passage, but also our work as disciples. Where are the places where we can do and should do things, and where are the places where we say, no, I I actually do nothing here and rest in the Lord and let him do his work so that I can stand in awe of that, and where do I participate in those places? Lastly, we'll talk about what a generous shepherd Jesus is that there is a point where he provides, and it's beyond that, that safe level of satisfaction. We probably all know what it is to, to have something that satisfied us, to, to have eaten enough that satisfied us, or had enough social time where it satisfied us and we need to go a little bit away. But Jesus gives abundantly beyond satisfaction, and it's always good. So I'm going to read Matthew 15, 32 through 39, and then we'll jump into the text after we pray. 
Matthew 15, 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending them away, the crowds, um, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us this day to find a deep-rooted satisfaction in you, that you would help us to turn away from things that we have believed and chased after to satisfy us that have left us with nothing but disappointment. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see how we can align our lives, orient our lives to be servants of yours, and find, Lord, a, a relationship where we work under the work that you're doing. Lord, we ask most of all that you would open our hearts and minds through the preaching of your word to see, know, love, and serve Jesus more. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so you may be one of the aware, studious members of this congregation. Think, wait a minute. Didn't we just do a Jesus feeding thousands of people in Matthew 14? How are we hitting it again in Matthew 15? You're not the first to ask these questions. They're a group of people who I will loosely use the term they use for themselves, scholars, in the 19th century decided something that had apparently been missed for 1,800 years among other Christians to say, well, what if it's not true? What if Matthew made a mistake? What if Matthew was writing this and sort of forgot where he left off and tried to tell the story again and didn't realize he told it twice? Since it appears twice, it can't possibly be what, what was happened twice. It must be a mistake in the writer. That the tax collector, a, a man who by his nature of his job has to be very careful with detail, made this terrible mistake. And not only that, not only would he have had to put it in twice, he would have to remember it differently each time because there are a lot of pieces that are unique in Matthew's 14 feeding of the 5,000 and Matthew's 15 feeding of the 4,000. There are about 1,000 people off, but that's just a small one. In, in chapter 14, it's the disciples who go to Jesus and say, what are we going to do? It's getting near dark. We should send these people in the towns to go get food. In, in Matthew 15, it's Jesus who initiates this. In Matthew 14, the disciples want to send them to get food in the towns. In Matthew 15, they realize we're, we're out in a desolate wilderness. There's no towns near to go get food. You start to see these are very different incidents. These are two separate accounts. In Matthew 14, they, they bring Jesus five loaves and two fish. Here they bring seven loaves and a few small fish. At the end of Matthew 14, as they collect all the fragments, they find 12 baskets of food are left over. Most probably that became the meals for the 12 apostles who were busy serving the entire time. And now there's 12 baskets. At the end of this, seven baskets. So, so why a, a similar story? If the point was made in the one, why, why would Matthew tell the second we have a lot of teachers at Terra, and they could probably tell you, repetition is part of teaching. You, you don't just do something once, teach something once, and expect everybody owns that. 
Jesus is constantly bringing repeated things before us in our lives. You've probably had times in your life where you think, God has said this to me before. God has given me this lesson before, but I need this again, and he's gracious to do it. Secondly, in the reality of thousands of people following Jesus, it just is natural that he had to care for them on more than one occasion. Further, why don't we get bothered by the fact that there are multiple healings of people, multiple healings of leopard by the blind, multiple raising of people from the dead, whether it's the little girl or Lazarus? No, this isn't a mistake. This is our God displaying his character, his care for his people, and his desire for us to learn from him in all that he's doing. There's also a difference, I think, to the point of it. If you look at the parallel account of Matthew 14, the feeding of the 5,000 and John 6, it concludes with a discussion about Jesus being the bread of life. He's setting them up, providing for them this bread from heaven, and then says, I'm the real bread from heaven. The, The miraculous provisions were just one piece of it, this. But here, that's not the goal. Here, I think Matthew is trying to show the compassionate heart of Jesus. So let's talk for a minute about the the compassionate shepherd. He's looking out at a group of people, thousands, 4,000 men plus women and children, and realizes they're they're hungry. They, They have needs that maybe they're not even thinking about because they desire so much to hear from Jesus. They probably weren't even all believers. We, we, we know from John chapter 6, a lot of people who were there at the feeding of the 5,000 didn't follow after him anymore. They went for who knows what reasons. Maybe they were curious, and if Jesus aligned with what they were saying, they would be okay with Jesus. Maybe family members said, come on, please, just join us. We'll have some, have some good times, listen to this rabbi. But then when it became too real, too conflicting to what they wanted, they, they walked away. Sadly, that's not the case just in... Bible times, but in ours. So some of the saddest memories I have of being at Terra Nova are people with whom I prayed, maybe it was in small group with some of them, sang hymns of worship together, and then at some point they walked away. They decided they, they read a book by a man or a woman that had just been published that said the Bible wasn't true, and boy, did they love that book more than reading the Bible, so they left. Or they determined they wanted to live a life that included some things the Bible said they couldn't do, so they decided these things couldn't be true because they wouldn't have this great desire to live that way they wanted to, or they would just walk away. But please know, Jesus has a compassion for us before we are believers, while we are believers, and continuing on in our walk of faith and failure as we stumble after him by grace. He always had that heart for us. To, to look on these people is not just, oh, you're mine and I care for you. You're my creation and I care for you is more where Jesus was. The, the, the faith of these people would become evident over time who was there or not, but he loved them with a compassion that was there before they realized it. While we were dead in our sins, he died for us, the Bible said. While we didn't care about Jesus, didn't know his name, didn't consider him as Lord, he had this great compassion on it. These people, they're three days deep into following Jesus into the wilderness. Whatever, whatever supplies they had for the day or two are gone now, and there's no town with them, near them, and they're without food. And so Jesus says, that, look, my, my compassion is incredibly practical. I, I feel for them, but my goal is to see them fed. It, it's important to note, I think, what point Matthew is making here. 
So if we looked back in the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 15, it's all about conflicts and encounters with the Pharisees and the big problem that Jesus had with them, that they had created all these rules and regulations, but didn't really have a heart. In Matthew 15, 7, 8, he confronts them and says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So Matthew's presenting in contrast to the Pharisees, who had all these rules, including rules that they made up, that they put over and above the rules that God gave us, that they had all these promises of teaching and what they were going to do for systems, and no heart. And Jesus has this compassion for these people. See, I think it's a big mistake when we can imagine God as somehow like an algorithm who's just running the world based on all the things that need to happen mathematically, or a robot, or a concierge. who's just dutifully doing these things. That was never the power that God had imbued this world with. It was his love. It was his compassion. So when we hit those places where we begin to make God less than, we begin to make him just a source of provision, a list of rules, some direction, maybe a little bit of hope for us, I think we're actually minimizing God. And we're not recognizing the depth of the heart and compassion that he has for us. Power without heart is a really dangerous thing. When you have governments who see numbers and not human beings, it usually doesn't go very well. When you have applications on the internet that can reach millions but don't care for one, it tends not to go very well. This is compassion. And I hope you see that in Jesus. I hope it really informs and enlivens your view of God this week. But remember, what you see in him is meant to be developed in you. It's it's the goal of this gospel that brings us to the promise of salvation to transform us more like Jesus. So if he's the compassionate shepherd, you and I should have compassion. Consider Ephesians chapter 4. Now in Ephesians, Paul writes those first three chapters saying here's what salvation looks like from heaven's perspective. And then very practically, because the Bible never leaves us without practice, takes us in 4 through 6 to how we live out heaven's salvation on earth. And he says this in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as Christ Jesus has forgiven you. It's this call to practice compassion in the church. It's it's meant to be the transforming evidence of every man, woman, and child who believes the gospel. To see the character of Jesus growing in them. And St. Paul will say that the way we practice that in the church, one of the ways, is to have compassion for one another. In in his letter to the church at Colossae, he'll write this in Colossians 3.12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy, And beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's on you, right? It's not saying God will make for you the choice of compassion, humility, kindness, and patience. You and I now have the capacity in Christ to choose from things we did not see before. When our hearts were dead in sin, when he did not indwell us, our hearts really chose selfishly all the time. We might even do a good work, but it may be so that we could be seen or that that we could find some value at the end of helping this person out. They could help us out. But you now have the capacity to choose a very different life. You can choose compassion, he says in Colossians. 
We don't have to just be lost in a singular focus as we navigate our way through this world. There are other things that are good and important, right? Like as we're Christians following after God, we want to have a deep spiritual pilgrimage chasing after our God. We, we want that. We want to understand him, know theology, have experience with him, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all. And if we make that all, we miss out on other things. We're meant to be lights, ambassadors, missionaries. But if we make that all, we miss out on other things. Compassion, as I see it laid out in the Bible, is meant to be practiced in the church. That that should mark us with each other. That, that we should be looking at each other with that goal of understanding and being able to apply compassion when there are needs in there. Your compassion is your practice of following Christ displayed. I love that you love evangelism and want to change the world. That's great. But don't you dare miss compassion in the church. I love that you love God and want to be more like him. Great. But don't lose out on compassion in the church or we're not really what the church was meant to be. So the disciples, they show up and, and they learn the lesson, I think, from that first feeding of what they can and can't do and apply it in this second feeding. Look at verse 33. It says, the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? One of the commentators I read said, this is very specific in the language that it emphasizes we. I think I agree with him that the emphasis is not on we're not going to be able to get food. It's what can we do? We've watched this before where you fed and we were worried and we thought we had to send people to towns. We were panicked like chickens with their heads cut off, but not anymore. Now they go, Lord, this is a you thing, not an us thing. Well, I think that's a great lesson for a disciple to understand the places where we can say, God, this is a God only thing. This is a God sized task. We know from experience how you've dealt before. Uh, I think they couldn't deny the miracle they saw displayed before, and now they realize it's not on us. They, they've learned. They, they, they've grown. Their work can't match the desires and provisions that only God can do. Not just them, no human. Psalm 146 says this, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. So the psalmist starts with, who are the human beings with the most power, most leverage, most opportunity to change things? Well, it would be the princes. But then he says, all human beings who cannot save. There are places where we have put our trust, our hope in other people because we could see them, because we want them to be the fix. And we're asking sometimes for them to fix, expecting for them to fulfill God-sized tasks. And if your trust ends up in people, you will become a disappointed and embittered person who now doesn't love their God because they didn't give him the chance to fulfill that alone, and now doesn't love your neighbor because you saw how disappointing we are as people. And, and we really are sometimes. And that's a biblical idea. It's not just me pontificating. In, in John 2.24, Jesus said, he didn't entrust himself to any man because he knew the nature of their hearts. My daughter, Abby, is good with words. And one day she said, as I was probably mentioning something about what people had done, she goes, People are the worst kind. And I've, I've learned to love that quote. Not kind of anything, they're just the worst kind. And I've let that one sink in. Not to expect or entrust that we're going to find all the answers in them. Why trust the princes of the world? I mean, heck, as Americans right now, we know our country has been divided for 
four years. It's going to be divided for another four years with people who see completely different things. And everyone's making the promises of either they'll make America great or they'll make America unified. And the other side says, that's not working. You say unity, unity, but then you say you want to silence certain people and deprogram and reprogram certain people. That's, that's not unity. That's the board. You're just controlling other people. Don't put your hope in princes. But don't let that terribly throw you. It's a God-sized thing to even run the governments of nations. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where he will. Can I change the heart and mind of princes in this world? No, I'm just an enjoyable, delightful, five-six Italian Irish guy from Troy who will have no impact on the leaders of Russia, China, United States. It's just, it won't be my role. It's a God-sized thing. But do I not participate in that? No, God actually gives us the place where we can join into this. Consider 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 2. Paul will say, first of all, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Christians, don't waste your time just being so passionate about the politics of this world that will change with the next newspaper date that you miss that you should be part of the kingdom of God, that you should be praying for those in authority because the kingdom living peaceful, quietly, and effective is the means that the gospel will spread in nations even that are in times of turbulence. We, we are the people whose forebearers lived in the persecution of Rome and didn't just try to say, guys, we need to vote Flavius or we're all in deep trouble. No. They, they, they lived as godly men and women who spread the gospel. Look, be, be politically involved to an extent, but don't lose your soul and your heads over this stuff. God has this. Pray for kings and those in authority so that the kingdom of God and God's people can be seen for what we are. Lastly, I want us to look at the provisions that came up in this. In the end, after the disciples came and said, we've got seven loaves and a couple fish, Jesus says, pick up the fragments that are left over. Now, remember, there's a key word in there. It said in verse 37, they all ate, all of them, until they were satisfied. Everyone has had enough. And then Jesus says, go pick up what's left, seven baskets. There was more than enough. The provisions of Jesus weren't just the bare minimums. I'll just get you exactly what you need and nothing more. It was abundant. And I think God was trying to give them a visual to understand. My provisions for you aren't small. They're not going to barely leave you eking out. If you're really feeding from me and on me, you will have so much more. And it's a God thing. My big fear is that we will become satisfied in the wrong things. That we would only be satisfied if we had enough money. We'd only be satisfied if we had a big enough house. We'd only be satisfied if we had the latest toy. We'd only be satisfied if we had these people in our life. And we'd only be satisfied if they lived this way and spoke this way. You can build your systems to try to give you some comfort and collect a few more things for yourself and figure out which influence, but those are never the things that will really satisfy you. Without Jesus, you and I are just playing with toys made out of dust on the sunset of a windy, windy evening. But God has great compassion on us. I imagine he looks at us like those people, like 4,000 people hungry in a wilderness, and says, I have compassion on these people. They have no goal in their lives. I have compassion on these people. They own nothing that can truly satisfy them. I have compassion on these people because they toil purposelessly of so many things. 
But God so loved the world. Not just God had a plan for the world. Not just God had an equation where your sins could be forgiven. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because there was nothing you or I or all of us combined could ever do to change the gulf that existed between a holy God and sinful humanity. It's a God-sized thing. And he gave us more and abundantly than we could have imagined and did. When I was in interning in, uh, out of seminary, actually in seminary at that time, in Texas, I went to a church called Trinity Presbyterian Church in Plano, Texas. And our preacher would close every single sermon with the exact same line. And at times it would wear on me. I would think, come on, dude, do, do the work, man. Just come up with something else to say. Here's what he would say at the end of every sermon, no matter what passage. Repent and believe the gospel. It feels so right that this sermon would end on that. Repent. Repent of the times where you believed God didn't care that he was not compassionate because you didn't see what you wanted to see in this world. Repent when you reduced God to to just a, a massive air traffic controller who was only working things and didn't have a heart for you in this. Repent of the times where you thought your work would accomplish God-sized tasks. And repent of the places where you found yourself thinking you were satisfied in what things or people could offer you when it was God who was meant to be your source of satisfaction. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we do well to give you praise because you constantly care for us. Lord, I pray that you'd expand our hearts to know your heart more. I pray that you would give us vision to see how you care and provide. I pray that you would give us ears that we would learn the lessons that you teach us repetitively again and again. Father, most of all, I pray for each man, woman, and child here that we would know you and your son, that we would love Jesus and be loved by him, and that we would continue to serve where we can. Father, we ask these things that we might find the deepest satisfaction heaven can give, satisfaction in our Savior, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.